Appreciated what Matt had to say uh, earlier as we opened. Um, there, there's a verse I just wanted to read uh, later on in Hebrews 12, actually, as he as he uh, begins to talk about just difficulties of life, and he talks about it in in uh, framing it as a loving father disciplining disciplining his sons, and and then he says this, which is it's just been encouraging to my heart uh, this week, honestly, and in all transparency. Uh, even as we were just singing, I went to this and read it just to encourage my heart this morning. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And this is why we come every week, isn't it? It's because we, we have... We have drooping hands and we have weak knees and we need help, friends. We need to continually come back to the cross to be reminded of truth, to have our eyes lifted to heaven and to see Christ for who he is. And so we're going to pray to that in this morning. Father, we thank you for a chance to to gather as your people, Lord, a chance to praise you and glorify you and sing truths about who you are and, and everything that you've done for us, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word, to hear from you as people in in need, Lord, that that battle the, the internal conflict with sin, but also the external conflict with sin in a sinful world that is full of pain and suffering and loss and difficulty, Lord. We come back weary and needy. And we need reminded of truth, Lord. We ask for that grace this morning. We come hopeful and expectant that you will encourage our hearts and continue by one degree of glory to the next. Bring us to the end. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Thanks for being here. It's good to see everybody. As you're... uh, getting situated, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 16. And if you are new with us, I don't know if you've heard yet or not, but this entire year we've just been going through the book of Romans. And so uh, at year's end, here we are, Romans 16, nearing the end, almost done. It's kind of hard to believe. Uh, I don't know if you're excited about that or sad about that, but either way. Romans 16, we'll be picking up in verse 17 and going through verse 23. Let me read for you here, starting in verse 17 before we get started. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ But their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cortus, greets you as well. Uh, in, in 1949, there was a man named uh, Joseph Campbell. He published a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Uh, and in that book, he, he essentially argued that there's, there's one single heroic um, pattern that all cultures share in their various heroic uh, myths and stories that are unique to them. The, the idea is that the, the hero, he has a million faces because underneath of the differing details and specific circumstances of all those stories, he's the same guy. <laughs> he has the same kinds of issues. He goes through the same kinds of struggles. He, he travels the same general story arc, and, and he comes out victorious on the other side in much the same way. But not only is this true cross-culturally, he argues, it, it's also true cross-temporally. And so it's not just true amongst different cultures, it's true across all of time, he argues. And the point is to show how the hero in all these stories, he's, he's part of a, a larger universe, right? The, the good and evil that he's caught battling between, they're all part of the same cosmic system that all people across all of space, time, and history, and culture find themselves in. And the reason for this, hang with me now, this is the, this is the point of all of it. The reason for this is that before the characters in our stories are all part of the same story, we, ourselves, all find ourselves in the same story as well. There's been billions and billions of different names and faces, but the same underlying problems, same underlying struggles, same underlying needs, because we're all a part of the same cosmic story. Since the beginning of time, you remember, humanity itself has, has found itself in conflict between good and evil, wisdom and folly, God and Satan, sin and righteousness, life with God and life apart from him. First it was Adam and Eve, but then Genesis 3, you remember, it, it sets up for us the rest of the drama when after Adam and Eve sin, God says these words to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Two sides for the rest of history, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, in conflict with one another until finally the seed, he's going to come and crush the head of the serpent once and for all. But, but all throughout the story, we read about this same exact conflict between the people of God and those who oppose him. A million different faces all caught up in the same exact story and, and drama of this battle between allegiance to God and rebellion against God and his good creation. And why this matters for us, and what Paul's going to make clear this morning, I think, is that we now are the faces of this exact same drama and story as well. Friends, do you want to, 
you want to understand the current moment, moment in, in history that you find yourself in. Don't go looking to history or to politics or to technological advancement. Go read your Bibles. New faces, new situations, new lives, new circumstances, all represented in this room, but the exact same story as the one that we see begin in Genesis 3 and see played out through the rest of the Bible. Seeds of the woman and seeds of the enemy. It's all the same story, and it's our story, but not only does the Bible explain our our moment in history in this way, it it also gives us the answer sheet as to how to live in it. Uh, Paul gives us both this morning. He both places us in the biblical storyline and tells us what we need to do as partakers in that story. And so as we go to Romans 16, where we're at today, our task is going to be, it's going to be twofold. First, we want to see how Paul actually does ground our story in the Bible story. How, how specifically is it now that, that we become one of the metaphorical heroes with a thousand faces? That's the first question. And second, to see how Paul actually instructs us to live as the new actors in the story that the Bible lays out. First, how does Paul ground our story in the biblical story? I think, I think in two ways. I think he communicates that we have the same conflict and the same potential consequences. Same conflict and same consequences. First, we'll talk about the same conflict. It's striking how similar the, the language in these first few verses is to the language of the, the drama and the story that we find in Genesis 3 and the fall of humanity. This begins right away in verse 18 where Paul, he, he describes these people that he's warning about and he does so by using the same kind of descriptions that are used to describe the serpent back in Genesis 3. He says, these men do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And then he says they do so by deceiving the hearts of the naive through smooth talk and flattery. Just to set expectations a little bit this morning. We're going to spend a good amount of time remembering and trying to think about and, and, and looking at what takes place in Genesis 3. So if you, if you want to turn there, that's helpful to you. Keep a finger there, a bookmark or whatever. Um, we'll be going back and forth a little bit. You don't have to, but if that's helpful to follow along, uh, you can go ahead and do that now because there's, there's a lot of connections uh, between the language Paul's going to use in our passage and, and the language of Genesis 3. If you remember the story in Genesis 3, you'll remember that these, these things Paul has just mentioned that we just, we just highlighted, they're the exact same issues as the story in Genesis 3. This is how it starts in verse 1. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now some translations here might say um, cunning. Mine says crafty. The idea with that, whatever word you have, it's just that he's, he's tricky, right? He's deceptive. He's slick. And what's the first thing that he does? He, he says to the woman, did God really say? You guys remember this? And, and he goes on to now twist God's words. He changes them a little bit. And, and what happens is exactly what Paul is now warning about in Romans 16. The, the original fall of humanity into sin, it was this crafty, deceptive, serpent coming to God's people and with his smooth deceptive talk he deceives them into making the wrong choice they do what is evil instead of good they choose 
folly over wisdom. They begin to follow their own desires and appetites instead of trusting God for what's good for them. And when we read the rest of the story, we see that he, he keeps trying to deceive people in this exact same way. <laughs> it's the whole biblical story, and he continues to do so all the way up to the present day because it's the essence of deception and rebellion against God. It's failing to, to believe him and trust that what he says is good and true. We'll keep coming back to this and filling this in throughout the message, but, but some of the overarching kind of structure of the entire biblical storyline, to be honest, to, that we follow, then it's this, it's this ensuing conflict between these two seeds that we mentioned. It's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This begins in Genesis 3.15 with God's first promise and clue as to how he's going to now solve this problem of a sinful humanity that can't be with him anymore because of their sin. And it's the promise we read earlier about the seed. He's going to come and crush the serpent. We'll, we'll come back to this later, but for now, just notice, notice how the Bible sets this, uh, sets this conflict up between, between two sides, right? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. As we keep reading the story, we see that it's not, it's not meant to be taken, these ideas, as a, as a uh, literal, like, metaphysical sense, but in, rather in a spiritual sense. And so the idea is that the seed or the offspring here, they both have this, this kind of singular and plural dynamic to them. What do I mean by this? Well, you'll remember in much the same way that we, we understood the, the offspring of Abraham. Remember the promise to Abraham? Uh, to, to, be, to have both this singular and plural dynamic to it. There was the one offspring, Christ, but then there was the many who were all those who had faith in Christ just like Abraham did. And we understood this because of the, the spiritual reality of being a child of Abraham, not the physical reality. Well, the same is true here in, in this language of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Throughout the Bible, the seed of the woman, it's not just humans, and the seed of the serpent, it's not just literal, physical snakes. You understand that? The seed of the serpent are all of those who are in opposition to God, and the seed of the woman are those who seek to live in submission to God, opposing the serpent. And so rightly understood what's being set up in Genesis 3, it's fundamentally the same conflict between good and evil, between wisdom and folly, sin and righteousness, life with God and life apart from Him, and all that that entails. And it takes on many different faces and different times and different places, with different people. It's sort of like a, a movie franchise that just keeps making the same movies, stories, right? But with new people in it, a new spin on it. You guys understand what I'm saying? Uh, James Bond would be a good example. You guys all know my love for James Bond by now. I think I've told you that. Uh, the great thing about loving James Bond, they just keep rolling out new James Bond movies, right? Like, I, like I don't know if we'll ever, ever stop getting new James Bond movies. They all have the same general, like, premise and plot features and storylines, uh, but different specifics, different actors, new faces, new specific circumstances, different faces to the story, but the same people in the story. Follow that. And this biblical drama with the seed of the woman, it kind of works the same way. There's new faces that come and go, there's new circumstances, new details, but it's the same story and the same drama and conflict all throughout. I think Christ makes this idea very plain 
when he, he confronts the religious leaders of his day, see who the faces of the story on Jesus' words in Matthew 12, verse 34, when he, on, on the basis of their hypocrisy and deception, he refers to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers, undoubtedly invoking the imagery of the seed of the serpent. They're the same faces in John 8 when he, he speaks to the re- religious leaders who seek to kill him. And this is what he says, listen, he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. But here's the kicker. (laughs) Instead of doing what Abraham did, he says, you are doing the works that your father did. Now notice the dynamic here of of seed and offspring or children. That's the language. These, These people are being contrasted with the children of Abraham. Good children versus bad children. Good offspring versus bad offspring. This is the same same drama from Genesis, remember. And then Jesus makes it even stronger a few verses later. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so you can see how, how even Jesus himself, he, he's making this connection between what the Pharisees are doing, how they're acting, and what Satan did all the way back in Genesis 3 at the beginning. He lied, he murdered, and he continues to do so, and he does it through his seed, his offspring, which is everyone who lives in opposition to God and his truth and his people. This was the enemy in Genesis 3, it was the enemy in Jesus' day, and it's the enemy of God's people even now. The enemy of his church. This story, friends, it's taken many faces throughout history. But now they take on our faces. And every follower of Jesus, now we are the people of God who live in opposition to the devil and his offspring. Paul says very clearly, Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons don't serve Christ. They're in opposition to King Jesus, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They're cunning, they're deceitful, and they're only out to seek to to steal, kill, and destroy, just like their father, the devil, And Paul's words here are watch out and avoid them. But not only is the conflict the same, the potential consequences of this conflict are the same. The the alternative and what's at stake in this would be the second way I think Paul grounds our story in the Bible story. It's the potential results or, or consequences of failing to heed his warnings here, which he describes in two ways. He says division and obstacles to right teaching. This is the verse we just read, but in 17 he says we are to watch out specifically for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. And one thing I want to point out about this in the context of Romans before we once again kind of try to zoom out and consider this in light of the, the greater storyline the Bible is giving us, it's the, it's the particular subject matter of what he's talking about here. Um, there there's, there's, seems to be two sides to this. He talks about division on one hand, and then what's implied on the other side is that there would be 
there would be unity. And, and the first question is, what is being divided, and what kind of unity is being implied here? And the context of Romans helps us answer both of those things. What would the unity that's implied be here? Well, I think it's, I think it's the unity of the church. Um, that's been the main thrust of the last several chapters. The, the theological groundwork for all of that was uh, the first eight chapters and uh, where he, he exhaustively explains the, the person and work of Christ in light of our problem of sin and how salvation works. And then there was, there was more, you remember, more of a theological focus on the, the unity of Jew and Gentiles now. And that was really focused on heavily in, in chapters 9 to 11. And, and then the focus became the, the more practical expression of that unity in chapters 12 to 15. And so you can see kind of the movement. It's all been moving towards this, this uh, big overarching idea of the unity of the church. It's the, the unity of the Jew and Gentile church now living as the one new man together, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, and living in the reality of what God has created. The question on the other side would be then, what division is taking place? Well, he answers that specifically. He says that the, the divisions and the obstacles here that he's referring to are contrary to the doctrine that is being taught. This doctrine, I think, is nothing less than the entire book of Romans that he's just written and the theology of the gospel that Paul has just laid out. But the point for us to understand in this, friends, is that we as God's church, we, we're, we're not united in the church around our hobbies or our, our interests, our race, our social class, or even our, our church preferences, honestly, like style of worship or service length or ministry programs or dress code. As much as we like to think about those things and prioritize them at some times and make church all about that, friends, the, the point Paul's making here is that God's church is united around sound doctrine. We're united around the message of the gospel that Paul has just gone to great lengths to explain exhaustively. And just very practically, part of what we have to understand is that when we, we fall into the line of thinking that would, that would say or, or think that we find unity in the church around any of those kinds of things, our preferences, whatever it is, wh- what we end up doing is we end up making church more akin to like a, a country club or a CrossFit class or a college fraternity than we do the reconciled people of God. You understand that? But the church is not like a country club or a CrossFit class or a college fraternity. It's a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And oh, by the way, underneath of that also falls every uh, personality and preference and style, all united around the shared conviction of our sin and our need for Christ. That's it. That's what we gather around and are united around. And I challenge any one of you, if you're, if you're doubting me even a little bit or not sure, go to any social group that you can find, any of those things, and find something to connect with someone over in those settings that is deeper or that you share more in common than that truth. Paul says that in the gospel, not only do we not unite around things like culture or preferences, Paul actually says even stronger. He says there's a sense in which uh, Jew and Greek, they're not even meaningful categories to consider anymore. Our new identity in the gospel, it, it far surpasses that because we all now share in the life of Christ that, 
that isn't concerned with our preferences. It's concerned with the qualities of the kingdom. And that's what we now unite ourselves around. It's an internal reality, not an external one. It's the message of the gospel about the person and work of Christ on our behalf. But here's what we have to understand. Biblical faithfulness, it's, it's not just simply about making the right, accurate statements in light of what the Bible teaches. It's also very much so about embodying the right kind of life. The kind of life that, that as the people of God are, are fitting expressions of what God's word says. And this is precisely, understand, because we are caught up in the story of God's people and involved in the story of the Bible. If you think about a playwright or, or a stage play, uh, you think about the actors in the story, it, it's not good enough for them to just stand up and recite the lines word for word. They also have to act the story out. They have to actually become the, the characters in the story. They have to use the right words, but they also have to put on different behaviors and different manner, mannerisms and be the person in totality, that that story demands. And the same is true of God's people. It's not enough, friends, to just sign up, uh, show up, and, and kind of sign our name on the dotted line of the doctrinal statement. That's not all that Paul has in view here. Unity as God's people, it demands that we also embody sound doctrine with the way that we live our lives and become fitting expressions of what the Bible teaches. This is Paul's logic in Ephesians 4, in, in the first three ver- verses there, where he, he's exhorting them to a specific kind of life which, which leads to unity with one another. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is contingent upon the right belief system, but friends, it is also contingent upon the right kind of attitude in life. Ones that would be marked by humility and patience and long-suffering and gentleness and the kind of behavior that Paul has been laying out for us in the last few chapters of Romans. And, and, and the reason this matters, if we could just kind of come back full circle here and, and make the point that's central to the text here, it's that this potential division, this potential division that could come, the potential consequence that Paul's talking about, it could come from either one. You follow me on this? I think this is illustrated by Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters. If anybody's read that book, the premise of the book, it's a very interesting book, by the way. Uh, you have Senior Demon Screw Tape, who is, uh, the whole book is him, him mentoring and uh, kind of instructing his nephew, Demon who's named Wormwood, and uh, he, he's teaching him how to, how, to, how to manipulate his human subject away from God and towards Satan. That's the whole book. Um, and, and, and all throughout the book, one of the, one of the just like overwhelming themes, repetitive themes that you see is the objective to create division. <laughs> all over the place. Division between this human and his, his family, division between him and friends or coworkers, uh, other churchgoers, but, but friends, you see that he aims to do this both through implanting deceptive, wrong kinds of thinking and beliefs and also encouraging him towards wrong and selfish behaviors and attitudes. 
And the reason for this is that the agents of the enemy, they recognize that we could just as easily be divided by false doctrinal behavior and action in in the church as we could false doctrinal statements in the church. Bad understanding of salvation or bad expressions of sacrificial love towards one another. Bad understanding of the person and work of Christ or bad expressions of peace and service towards one another. And friends, let me tell you something. Satan will be 100% happy with either one that you give him. <laughs> See, I... <laughs> can I go on kind of a rant for a second? Are you guys good with that this morning? I'm going to do it anyway, so... We, we, we freak out in the church over, over doctrinal misstatements. We freak out over people, quote-unquote, uh, leaving the gospel as they begin to articulate something different with their word. I, I think one way that you have seen this massively magnified probably in, I don't know, the last five, ten years are, is, is it, especially within mainstream Christianity and kind of the Twitter sphere, we'll call it, uh, but it's the reactions that we see from Christians towards uh, things like deconstructionism or, or maybe more liberal theology or, uh, dare I say the word, wokeism. We treat these things like they're, they're the boogeyman in every closet. And, and hear me, I'm not condoning or trying to excuse any kind of bad theology of any kind. You, know, you, you guys know me better than that by now. It's, it's an absolute problem in the church. It's a work of the devil who, as we know, he's always trying to deceive us with smooth talk and get us to, to compromise on the truth and believe something else. And it has absolutely divided the church in some situations. That's true. And as God's people, we should be absolutely fluent enough in our theology to, to not only say that, but also explain why words and beliefs matter 100%. But, but this is the point, and maybe the challenge for all of us, do we get as upset about and are we as diligent in our churches in defending against the selfish, egotistical, unloving, judgmental, self-righteous, and greedy behaviors and attitudes that exist in the church as we do liberalism and whatever other pet theological issues that we like to get upset about and argue with? If you want to talk about the enemy dividing a church, that'll do it right there. Any of those things. Don't tell me that Satan is not working to deceive God's people into, into selfishness and into bitterness just as much, if not more so, than through, the, than, than through whatever systematic theological issues are out there. And his goal in all of it is to divide God's people. He's a killer, he's a liar, and he's a murderer, and he will do anything, anything, anything that he can to steal the unity of the church and to divide God's people just like he always has, whether that's through, through unfaithful doctrinal statements or through unfaithful doctrinal expressions in the lives of God's people. He will deceive and cause division in any way that he can. I, I love this quote. It's from Richard Sibbs. He says, Satan offers an apple and takes away paradise. He says, therefore, in all temptations, consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. And from the beginning in the garden until now in the church, friends, it's, it's, it's the same story. It's the same conflict, and it's the same potential consequence. It's the division and the destruction of God's good thing that he has created and given to his people to live in. 
And this is why it's important to realize that not only does Paul ground and identify our story in the biblical story that starts all the way back in Genesis 3, he also gives us the answer sheet and the instruction manual on how to live this out faithfully, to succeed in the conflict and to avoid the same kinds of consequences. This is the second movement of our sermon this morning. How does Paul now instruct the church to live out this story in our time and context that we find ourselves in? We'll say two things here as well. The first thing Paul wants us to do as the church is to live in wisdom. He says in verse 19, For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul says that what we need to do in light of the drama that we find ourselves in is we need to be wise. And this too is part of the same old story that the Bible presents. There's different faces and different circumstances same keys to success. There's two things I want us to consider about this idea of wisdom and how it, how it connects us to the Bible's story. First, notice how wisdom, it's described as being able to discern between good and evil. This, again, should cause sparks to go off in our mind, reminding us uh, of Genesis 3. Paul just, he, he kind of keeps just tugging us back and trying to see ourselves in light of what, what unfolds there in the garden with, with Adam and Eve. Remember, what was Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve? He says, when you eat of the forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the deception, of course, is that they're already already like God. The Bible says that, made in his image. And God, he's already told them what's good for them and what's not. And so for Paul to say, you need to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil— It's essentially to say that they need to exist in the same way that Adam and Eve were intended to all the way back in the garden. Uh, God told them what was good for them, and they were innocent to evil in the sense that they, they had not experienced it. All they knew was the goodness that God had given them. That was their whole lives. But the nature of their deception now is that they, that they, that they can discern what is good and what's not good apart from God. That's what they try to do. They then try to try to discern for themselves apart from God's word, and they make the wrong judgment, and they fall into sin. And then now we, we know this type of life, it becomes descriptive of the condition of sin upon all of humanity. It's just the state that we now live in apart from Christ. Remember how Paul describes this in Romans 1. He says, men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. This is the reality of life and sin. But it raises the question, though, if sin, if sin taints humanity to such a gr- degree that they, they not only don't understand, but they can't understand what is good and what is not, they can't see that, then how are we going to live in wisdom, right? How are we going to be able to make the right judgments? How is this possible? Well, this is the second thing to point out about this idea of wisdom, is that we, we, have, to, we have to recognize where wisdom ultimately comes from, and we have to come back to the source of wisdom, which is only ever found in God's Word. This is, again, what they failed to do in the garden, and it's what the author of Hebrews says is the, the essence of our sin. It's failing to trust God's Word for our life. It's also the message for humanity all across the entire Bible. You remember, live in wisdom. This is what God's people need in light of sin, is to live in wisdom. In Psalm 1, it's the, it's the man who delights in the Word of God that is blessed. Psalm 19, it's the word of the Lord that makes the simple wise. In Psalm 119, wisdom, it's given through believing 
in the Word of God. And so it's very clear that wisdom is found in believing the Word of God. This is inherently what sin fails to do. But this is where it begins to get interesting because the Bible also speaks about wisdom as if it were a person in some places. It, it, gets, it gets personified. What do I mean by this? Well, in Proverbs 8, for example, wisdom itself proverbial, proverbially excuse me, speaks to us. It's personified in that it seems to be talking to the reader directly. And, and part of what it explains to its reader is that it, wisdom, was with God from the very beginning. Verse 22 there, it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Verse 27, When he established the heavens, I was there. And so the book of Proverbs here, it portrays wisdom not just as a thing to be attained, but as a person. And specifically, a person who has been with God from the beginning of time. We see another idea about wisdom in Isaiah 11, that, that part of the description of the Messiah to come is that he will possess the spirit of wisdom. I hear his words in 11, verse 1. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And so what, what is this, right? We, have, we, have, we need wisdom. We can have wisdom through the Word of God, but then we have this idea of wisdom as a person, uh, we have the spirit of wisdom who's coming upon a person who's supposed to come and save us. And so what are we supposed to make of all of this? I think John begins to make this plain in chapter 1 of his gospel where he, he begins to explain now that this eternal word of God, he's actually put on flesh and he's come down to dwell among us. The word of God, it turns out, is a person, and the wisdom of God in the Scriptures has become embodied in Christ, His manifest Word, the very expression of who God is. This is why Paul says so strongly in 1 Corinthians 1, very, very pointedly, that Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. He embodied it. It's sort of like the, the Spider-Man memes going around. Have you guys seen this? Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? Well, there's like three Spider-Mans are all standing in a triangle and they all, of course, look the exact same. Uh, but they're all like pointing to each other like, it's him, right? He's the guy. And the idea of this is that they're, they're, they're all, they're all Spider-Man. And that's what this relationship is like between Christ and God's Word and this idea of wisdom. They're really all the same. <laughs> and Christ is the eternal Word of God made flesh. He's the embodiment of of wisdom and the life of wisdom is a life in Christ. It's a life that is saturated in the Word of God. John Calvin understood this. If you read through his commentary on the Gospel of John, he almost uses the words wisdom and, and word as in word of God. He uses them interchangeably through the whole thing. Because to him there was no defining either one without mentioning the other and observing the fact that both were embodied in the person and work of Jesus. And friends, this is precisely why Christ once again offers us the solution to the problem that we have. We're no longer just dealing with the, the, the external word and, and something that is outside of us that we can't attain because of our condition of sin. John goes on to explain this through the words of Christ in John 16, that this, this spirit of wisdom that he possesses, he's also going to send down and give to all of those who trust in him. 
And so now that Christ has come and he, he sent his spirit, wisdom, it's no longer about attaining something that's outside of us or gaining something that we don't have. It's about life in the spirit. It's about life in the word. It's about the life of Jesus that we now live. It's an internal reality that we now possess and are free to walk in through the spirit of Christ who has been put into our hearts. And by submitting to him and, and meditating on the word and feasting on Christ, now we can live in wisdom and not in deception. Now we can live in good, not evil, in righteousness, not in sin, with God, not apart from him. Faithful actors in the story. But the question still remains, where is this all going, right? We're in the story. We know the conflict. We know the potential consequences. We even know what we need to do in it. But now it's time to consider not just the beginning or the middle of the story, but the end of the story. How are we going to end this thing? And This is our last point this morning. Paul wants to remind us once again of the hope of victory that we have in Christ. Uh, I, I've always been uh, a reader. I like to read even as a young kid. Like to read storybooks, uh, but my, my guilty pleasure in reading was that I always, I always had to, I had to read the last page of the book before I started. And uh, as I got older, I grew and matured, and I became disciplined, and I would wait until I got through like the first 10 pages, but I still, I, I just could not help it. I always had to, and it wasn't even like I got what the end of the story, like there's really not much on the last page, but I just, I just had to I just had to know. How did it end? What did it say? And uh, my mom would always get on me about this and tell me not to, but I did anyways. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I love my Bible. <laughs> because unlike other stories, the Bible, it never tries to hide the end of the story. Amen? It never tries to hide it. It is not a secret. We get the end of the story at the very beginning, friends. God tells us exactly how the story is going to end. And, and just in case we somehow forget as we're reading through the Bible, it just keeps reminding us of the end all the way throughout, all the way up to Romans 16 where we are today. In our text this morning, Paul, he, he's gone from the present day, the church age, and, and what he's done is, is he's drawn these amazing parallels between uh, where they are now and what's going on and our story and the way it all starts. He's connected the two. And in doing so, he, he literally has encapsulated not only the entire biblical storyline, but, but in all reality, all of human history. And he effectively says, you're all part of the same story. And in light of the entire storyline of the Bible, all of it, these are his parting words. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. friends, if there's one thing that you need to hear this morning or that you should remember as you leave, it's these words. Not only has the conflict been the same, not only have the consequences always been the same, not only have the instructions always been the same, the ending has always been the exact same. There's been millions and millions of faces and circumstances, but the end of the story is the exact same for all of us. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
And the obvious connection here is Genesis 3.15, once again, a, a direct, direct illusion. This was God's original promise after the fall was that there would be this, this seed of the woman who would come and he would, he would crush the enemy once and for all. And we know, of course, that the seed of the woman, it's ultimately Jesus Christ. But this is, it also becomes the pattern and expectation uh, that we see in the Bible of God's enemies being defeated. Uh, to, to put it simply, bad guys get their heads crushed in the Bible. <laughs> How's that for theological astuteness? In Numbers 24, these are just a few examples. It's the Messianic king from the tribe of Judah who's going to crush the head of Moab, the enemy of Israel. In Judges 5, Jael kills Sisera by striking his head. You'll remember, we all know this one. David kills Goliath by throwing a stone at his head. Judgment comes upon the head. In Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk 3, the Davidic king, he's going to crush the head of the wicked. The way this all ends, the enemy's head, it's going to be crushed and we're reminded of that through the entire story as enemies of God repeatedly have their heads crushed. That's how the story goes. The Bible's not secretive about the ending. It tells you what the ending is up front, and it keep remind, keeps reminding you of the ending throughout by showing you a pattern of this exact same thing happening all throughout the story as well. And this is important to realize how this works in the Bible because notice how Paul, he, he, he changes the language up a little bit here. Satan is not crushed under the head, the, the foot of Christ here, the one seed. He's crushed under the feet of the people that he's speaking to, the church. And this is really where we have to begin to see our place in the story, is it not? Because you see, I think if, if I could just be real for a moment again, I think we, we, often, we often think about life and we process it as if we were just merely victims of it. Like, we're just kind of stuck here as, as helpless subjects to whatever this sinful world is going to bring upon us. And friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Just like he's been metaphorically crushing the heads of his enemies through his people all along in anticipation of Christ to one day do it finally and completely, so does he do the same thing today here and now through his people, friends, you and me, through his church through the testimony of their lives and doctrine, through their, their love for one another, all the things that Paul has explained and exhorted us to in Romans, it is an absolute assault on the enemy of God. You remember Christ said at the very institution of his church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We don't just play defense in the church, friends. We play offense. And the enemy cannot withstand our attacks. And the question for everyone is very simple. Do you believe that? And do you live like it's true? The hope that we have in this and the reason that we, can, that we can believe it and that we can live like it's true, it's not because of our own faithfulness and, and sort of tactfulness and strategy in the battle. It's because of the faithfulness of God's promises to us in Jesus. That the same God who's been crushing the heads of his enemies through his people is still metaphorically doing the same thing today. And Paul says right here, very soon, very soon, He's going to crush him completely, finally. If you remember the Chronicles of Narnia, remember the, the kind of the turn in the story, it, it takes place with this simple line. 
they say Aslan is on the move. You remember at that point, uh, things don't look good. The White Witch, she seems to be winning. She's turned everything with snow, so it's always, it's always winter, never spring. There seems to be defeat around every corner, and, and the, the life just in the cold and snow at, at every waking moment, it, it's just a constant reminder of her grip, the enemy's grip on all of life. But Aslan is on the move. And once he gets here, we all know what's coming. <laughs> we all know how it ends at that point. It's all over at that point. It's the certainty of his arrival that gives them hope to move forward, friends. And, and we all have to realize here today as God's people, as his church, that the exact same is true for us as well. Worshiping, you guys can come up. We're going to close. We're going to close up here. Friends, as we live life in a sinful world, tempted constantly by the deception of the devil, both, both victims to the problem of sin, but also, also perpetrators to the problem of sin, longing for everything to once again be as it should be. Friends, our hope lies in the fact that one day Jesus Christ is going to stand up again. And he's going to come down again. And once he does, it's all over. It's all over. The king of Psalm 110, who who, although for a little while we don't get to see everything in subjection to him, everything has indeed been given over in subjection to him. It, it, it exists under his feet. And very, very soon, Paul says, we're not going to have to read about it anymore. We're going to see it. We're actors in the story, friends, but we're not, we're not performing an improv, right? We don't have to make it up as we go. We've been given the script ahead of time. We've been told the story and the conflict and the consequences, and we've been told exactly how to live in it. But we've also read the end of the story. We've seen the last page. We know how the story ends, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet, bringing everything under the submission of Christ once and for all. Amen? And that's our hope this morning and where we direct our eyes. And so let's pray, pray to that end. Lord, we thank you once again for everything that you've done for us in Christ. We thank, thank you that you did not just hand us over to what we deserve, Lord, but that you sent your son to actually enter into the sinful world that we created, that you, you don't just write the story and, and maybe even control the story, you actually enter into the story. And that before we were ever called to live faithfully in it, Lord, you, you did it for us. You accomplished the end on our behalf, Lord. And so now as we, as we live life in this world and in the conflict, Lord, we repeatedly look to you not only as our example but as our Savior. And we trust in you. We see you seated on your throne, reigning over all things, Lord. Everything given in subjection to you. And in the midst of the struggle of this life, Lord, we, we see you for who you are and we have hope. And God, we ask that you just help us to keep seeing you there. Help us to not define life, life, define you and your, who you are by the things of this world and circumstances. Help us to see you for who you are and where you are and what you've accomplished so that we could live faithfully in light of that. And we pray these things in your name, Lord.
Just stand with us.